Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen and this week we'll be looking at Kerrang! issue number 605, July the 13th, 1996, pence every Wednesday. This week, the cover stars, well there's a couple, there's a few. It's a sunburst summer issue. So on the cover we've got Kurt Hammett, John Connor from Dog Eat Dog, um, Raymond, no not Raymond Herrera, Burton C. Bell from Fear Factory and Shirley Manson from Garbage. Dog Eat Dog, Metallica, Fear Factory, Garbage, Hot Sound, Cool Swag and Festival Freakouts. Also, The Wild Hearts, we've got two LPs ready already. Bon Jovi, Tico on his Wonder Girl, Terrorvision, Heavy Metal Handbag House, Kiss and Alice in Chains, America's Hottest Tour and Ultra Cool John and Skin Posters. Because what the world needs is more John Bon Jovi and Bon Jovi posters. So in 1996, in the summer, um, in this week, um, Wannabe by the Spice Girls was released. And also, for anyone that's interested in football and the Euros, England had been knocked out by Germany on penalties. The uh, Gareth Southgate missed, God. I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, the now England manager, Gareth Southgate, yeah, scoring that penalty. Pretty bad, pretty bad to be honest. But it was a great tournament. I mean, I I remember it fondly as a great tournament. Uh, I think probably just because England actually did well. Um, it was the summer of um, uh, free loans, and football was supposed to be coming home. Football never did come home. And for any England football fans out there, as you all know, still waiting, still waiting to win a trophy. It's only been fifty odd years. It's 1966 since we won a World Cup or a Euros. What a bloody joke. Anyway, if you'd like to get in contact with us here at Karangback Issues, we can be contacted via Instagram, Karangback Issues, Twitter, Karangpod, email, Issues at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave us a review on Apple Music or Spotify, wonderful. Please do it. If not, then don't. That's all right. I'm not bothered. We're not going to fall out. Let's crack on with this week's issue because we've got loads to get through. So this issue was created with the following stimulant. The Monster Kerrang Awards. Don't miss our full report next week on the star-studded rock bash of the year. Claire Dalsy's day off. Bastard. All day hangovers. The new Alice in Chains and Sebado albums. Late nights and early mornings. Cheeky little monkey chucks. Dominus, a one-act play. Collective hysteria. Deputy Editor Mike Peake's uncanny resemblance to Manuel from 40 Towers. Smoking, as in Dave Everly, I've always wanted to start smoking. The Columbia Hotel. And also, I forgot to mention, I did a little bit of podcast moonlighting this week. Well, I actually did it a few weeks ago, but it came out this week. So, if you... uh, I think we've talked about this podcast on here before. I'm free with this month's issue. So I had a really, really great chat with uh, Colin from over there and we talked about the uh, Rare tape which came out with Kerrang! Um, it was October 1995 and we were supposed to record this last year but you know, life gets in the way sometimes, uh, things happen. But uh, that was released so you can find that on all your uh, good podcast uh, proponents, proponents, exporters, I don't know. Places where you get podcasts. There we go. Um, yeah, we had a really good chat about this tape. Went through the whole thing. Um, really good fun. Uh, that podcast is fantastic. Give it a listen if you can. Free with this month's issue. Um, they do a similar thing, uh, but they they they, they uh, say a similar thing to what we do here. But they review all of the tapes and the CDs that are given out 
um, with magazines, rock magazines, Enemy, you know, Melody Maker, all that kind of stuff. So it's such a like, such a niche. Like this, you think this podcast is niche? They're like niching on a niche. I love it. It's so good. It's like absolute top nerdery, and I'm totally here for it. It's wonderful. Anyway, give that a listen. It's a, it's a good chat. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So let's kick off this week where we always begin news. The Wild Hearts have secretly completed work on a brand new album, slotting in studio time when they had a break in their busy touring schedule supporting ACDC in the UK and Europe. And main man Ginger is ecstatic about the result. It's fucking brilliant, infuses Ginger about the record, and it's more of a band effort than the other stuff. This time round, Danny, Rich and Jeff have all written stuff and also sing. It's got great artwork and we want to get it out in September. New song titles include Velvet Presley, Aboria, Ride the Wave and Tom Take the Money. But Ginger and the band are keeping the album title very much under wraps. All that will be released on the foursome's own label Round Records, as was the re-release Fishing for Lucky's album. But this won't be the only album from the band in 1996. They also have a Best of the B-Sides album in the pipeline, to be culled from the wealth of exclusive material on their past singles. We've learned to keep busy, says Ginger. Stay out of trouble, get in the studio. The B-Sides album should be out at the end of the year and it will all be remixed and well packaged. Last Ginger, people will probably only catch up with our output when we're fucking dead. The band will be appearing on the main stage at the Phoenix Festival on July 19th. This is their only confirmed summer live show in the UK. Guns N' Roses, the missing in action multi-million selling LA stars have secretly started working on a new album in LA and Karankin exclusively revealed that main man Axl Rose is not only singing but playing guitar. Bassist Duff McKagan tells Karang, we're working on about 15 songs, some of them just riffs, some of them more developed but it's all moving quickly. Duff, drummer Matt Sora and guitarist slash and keyboardsman Dizzy Reed have been working with Axl on their new material. And with no rhythm guitarist currently on board, Paul Huguet, who appeared on the band's 95 cover of the Rolling Stones' Sympathy for the Devil for the film Interview with a Vampire, is long gone, and reports linking former member Izzy Stradlin with a return seem wider the mark. Axel is also playing guitar. Axel taught himself, says Duff. He knows what he wanted to play. The band hoped to go into the studio this summer, if all goes to plan. Uh, spoiler alert, it doesn't go to plan. In the meantime, Duff and Matt are working with Sex Pistols guitarist Steve Jones and Duran Duran bassist John Taylor in Neurotic Outsiders, who released their self-titled debut album from Maverick on August 27th. Stone Temple Pilots vocalist Scott Weiland is back in rehab after going missing for 48 hours. As reported in last week's Kerrang, the singer broke the conditions of his bail when he disappeared from the Impact House Rehab Center in Pasadena, California, where he's been receiving treatment for his drug addiction. A warrant was issued for his arrest, but two days later, the 28-year-old singer gave himself up to the police, explaining that he walked out of rehab to sort out some personal problems. Apparently, Wyland had been upset by reports in the American media that the pilots were looking to replace him, something vigorously denied by the band themselves. I had a personal problem and had to talk to my wife, says Wyland at the incident. He also insisted that he took no drugs during his absence. When he absconded from rehab, Wyland faced the very real possibility of being put in jail. However, Judge Elvira Mitchell, who issued the warrant for his arrest, agreed to give him one last chance to complete his treatment. 
As Wyland tries to kick his habit, Stone Temple Pilots men Rob DeLeo, Dean DeLeo and Eric Kretz are working with singer David Coote on a side project called Vitamin. Goo Goo Dolls have run into trouble in America over the cover artwork for their million selling album A Boy Named Goo, despite the fact that it was released almost a year ago. Walmart, a major American chain of record stores, are apparently refusing to stock any more copies of A Boy Named Goo because of complaints about the cover, which features a photo of a boy whose face is smeared with blackberry juice. Goo Goo vocalist Johnny Rezanek remains unrepentant about the sleeve. I resent the idea of someone seeing this as a dirty picture and Walmart making a moral judgement about the art on my album cover. The Goo Goo Dolls have just completed a lengthy US tour which includes dates supporting multi-platinum Brit stars Bush. Shannon Hoon, the late vocalist with Blind Melon, is at the centre of a legal ruck in the States where claims have been made that he may not be the father of the girl he called his daughter. The allegations have been made by Hoon's family, who are now demanding that the child, Nico Blue, born last summer, undergoes a DNA test to determine who her father is. The Hoon family are reportedly aggrieved that Shannon, who died from a drug overdose last October, didn't leave a will and that Nico Blue will inherit all he owned. Hoon's sister Anna is now claiming that Shannon had intended to leave everything to his mother, Nell. What makes the situation even more confusing is that the Hoon family also claim that Shannon is the father of another child born seven years ago. But Nico Blue's mother, Lisa Krauss, insists she remembers exactly when and where Nico was conceived, and Hoon is definitely the father. American news, and we start this week with Don Kay in New York. I just have to open with news about the first day of the KISS reunion tour which took place in Detroit, where else? Spotted backstage, clearly relishing the occasion were Smashing Pumpkins main man Billy Corgan and Skid Row vocalist Sebastian Bach. If even were hoping to get close to their heroes, then their hopes were quickly dashed. Nobody was allowed near the members of KISS once they arrived. Apparently the fan forced them put on their makeup and costumes at the hotel before jumping into waiting limos and heading off to Tiger Stadium, where they were escorted straight to the stage. Guess that grease paint doesn't stay on as long as it used to. The New York Times, not exactly well known for its coverage of cutting edge music, surprised everyone by sending the journalist down to Kansas City to review the opening date of the Lollapalooza tour. He loved Metallica, Soundgarden and Rancid, who apparently were in fine form. But the paper also warned that the current festival has little to do with the alternative social bent of the original concept. Now says the Times is just a good testosterone driven big rock show. Sounds good to me. How the Mighty Have Fallen, the Misfits, Anthrax, Cannibal Corpse show at New York's Roseland sold just 1,300 tickets, less than half the capacity, and this in Anthrax's hometown. Rumours continue to circulate that the Frax are in the process of getting themselves out of their deal with Electra, or alternatively, that Electra are about to drop them, and the Metal Blade Records are waiting in the wings to snap them up. But these are just rumours, to be followed alongside reports that Anthrax guitarist Scott Ian is planning a full-blown SOD reunion. As for the Misfits, the presence of two original members, bassist Jerry Oney and guitarist Doyle, gave them some credibility, as did the presence of a new young singer who pulled off the Glenn Danzig vocal style with ease. Next we join Lisa Johnson in LA. Green Day plan to record a new album next spring, when a summer release is expected. But fear not Green Day fans, because whilst a new album from the punk trio might still be a year off, the band are currently looking at footage shot during their recent European tour for a home video, which should be out during the autumn. 
All this activity should end the rumours that Green Day are about to split up. Texas Rock came to California last week when the butthole surfers arrived, accompanied by the toadies, Reverend Horton Heat and the Super Suckers. Okay, the suckers might live in Seattle, but they're honorary Texans. The buttholes, in particular, are enjoying considerable uh, success at the moment with new album Electric Larry Land, currently moving swiftly up the Billboard charts. It's now reached number 44, so it must have come as something of a shock to the band when a promoter in San Diego pulled their show because of poor ticket sales. Oldies package tours seem to be in vogue over here at the moment. We've got Cheap Trick and Boston currently out together, and Ario Speedwagon and Foreigner also on the road. And then there's Alice Cooper and the Scorpions, who've just hit LA on their co-headlining trek. Alice was in typically theatrical mood, conducting a West Side Story-style fight on stage, during which time he killed someone with his cane before being put in a straitjacket. Inevitably, Alice escaped to kill the doctor, to the obvious delight of the crowd. One of the show's highlights came when Guns N' Roses guitarist Slash joined Alice uh, for the song Lost in America, and Slash stayed on stage for Only Women Bleed. As for the Scorpions, the less said, the better. And finally this week, we joined Kevin Roberts in Seattle. Kurt Cobain's troubled life is being used as the inspiration for updating a classic play. Nirvanoff, described by one critic as a high-voltage rock musical, has just premiered in Florida at Tampa Bay's off-center theater. Part cabaret, part rock concert, part psychological drama, and part absurd dreamplay, the show is actually based on Russian writer Anton uh, Chekhov's 100-year-old play Ivanov. In addition to having performers play the parts of Cobain called Nirvanarov in the performance, Courtney Love, a greedy industry executive and a teenage fan, the play features narration by an actress in the role of Frances Farmer, the controversial 1940s Hollywood actress who was eventually committed to a lunatic asylum and with whom both Kurt and Courtney felt a spiritual connection. The hour-long play also includes a dance troupe called the Seattle Grunge Rock Vampires, plus live music. Written by New Yorker David Lee, Nirvanov focuses on the forces that make Cobain live and die. In one scene, set just after Cobain's escape from rehab, one of the characters cynically comments, a man's life is like a bright flower blooming, until a goat comes along and eats it. All very depressing. Metallica made a surprise appearance in Kurt Cobain's hometown of Aberdeen last week to perform a private show for a lucky competition winner and his Metalli mad mates. The band turned up unannounced at the house of MTV competition winner Mike Burgess, played a gig there for the awestruck fan and his equally ecstatic friends and then went into town to play live at local tavern Louis pub. One fan commented on the visit, These are the kings of music, everyone must bow down to the Metallica gods, I even have Metallica underwear. Wonder if he ever changes it. Come to think of it, I wonder if Metallica have thought about manufacturing official Metalli underwear. Do you know where you are? All I know is when I was here and I was 17, I was in the middle of the fucking jungle, baby! On location, this week Liz Evans joins Three Colours Red at the Sex Pistols' Finsbury Park show. Three Colours Red are second on the bill at the Sex Pistols' filthy lucre gig in London's Finsbury Park. They're pleased as punch and nervous as hell about it. But at 12.45pm they play an absolute blinder and then scurry off to get the beers in before going in front of the camera for a host of interviews. NTV Europe, Sky TV, Live TV and other news networks are all here with big furry microphones and bubbly blonde presenters. That done, vocalist bassist Pete Vukovic spends the rest of the day with his girlfriend Coffee Nail and relaxing in the sun while guitarist Ben Hardin and Chris McCormack 
run around like headless chickens, locating necessary festival supplies and cans of lager. Chris's mum, dad and kid brother Anthony are all here, what with his elder brother Danny playing later with the Wildhearts. It's turning into something of a family affair. So how did Mama Cormac feel watching her middle son's band play? I felt really proud she beams. I think they've done really well. Is it true you can drink young Chris under the table? Possibly. I'm saying nothing. No comment. Wildheart's main man Ginger comes out to say hello. Slice of pizza in one hand, pint in the other. How are you going to keep sober till showtime then, Ginge? I'm drinking cider, he says. Well, it's not a real drink, is it? Ben is now vegetating in the beer tent. He's had six cans of Carlsberg for breakfast and he's still not hungry. I'm in pain actually, he says, so I've got a cracked rib from coughing after partying very, very hard for four days straight. Later, Ben cheers up when he gets to meet England footy star Stuart Pearce and Gareth Southgate. Ben has his picture taken with him by squealing Japanese journalists and tabloid snappers. So what on earth is Stuart Pearce doing here? I came here because I like the music, he says, but I'd rather not do any interviews because it's my day off. Know what I mean? Who are we to argue with a man they call Psycho? After the Wild Hearts have played, Ben is nearly delirious with joy. I've just taught Gareth Southgate how to headbang to the Wild Hearts, he howls. It was the greatest rock and roll moment of my life. You now know who to blame for that penalty miss. The rest of the day sinks into alcoholic oblivion. Ben and Chris think the pistols are great, even though they don't get to hang out with them. Nor do they spot Oasis in Li uh, Liam Gallagher, Patsy Kensett or Johnny Depp and Kate Moss. But Chris does get to do a bungee jump. It's been fucking great playing with the pistols, he says afterwards. If there was one band in the world I'd have picked to play with, it would have been them. And with that, Chris McCormack uh, kindly lends Karanga tenor and staggers off into the night. The future of Britrock. Cool, talented and generous to a fault. Bang in order. We now come to this week's cover stars Dog Eat Dog. And whilst they're not strictly the main cover stars, because, um, you know, it mentions Doggy Dumb Metallica Fear Factory Garbage, they are actually the band that have the main interview for uh, the magazine. So all intents and purposes, they are the cover stars, so let's run with that. Bark Life. Life couldn't be better for Doggy Dog right now. They've just made the record of the summer, and they're having a blast soaking up the sun on the streets of New York. If only Jason Arnott hadn't popped up to ask them why they used to be crap. The year was 1975. Kiss were releasing their third album, Dress to Kill. Young David Neobor was so excited that he forced his mother to drive him to the nearest music store on the day of release. His sister came along for the ride. On the way back to their suburban New Jersey home, they had a nasty little accident. His sister's head went through the windscreen. The dust settled, the initial shock subsided. The boy came back to his senses and had a terrifying thought. Is my Kiss album okay, he asked. Neither his mother or sister were badly hurt but they'd never let David forget his amazing display of twisted priorities. The bassist laughs as he tells the story again over two decades later, as his singing pal John Connor looks on. The pair are now sitting pretty in Dog Eat Dog. They've bagged an MTV award, had a top 10 UK single and gained worldwide respect. They'll be supporting the reunited glam rockers at Dunnington on August the 17th. We're sitting in New York's All-Star Cafe on a massive seat shaped like a baseball glove. The table, although partly obscured by burgers and drinks, looks like the ball. It seems fitting as Doggy Dog's new album is called Play Games and packaged like a set of baseball trading cards. The place is as noisy as hell. Welcome to New York, shouts John at the tape recorder. Luckily, we're loud motherfuckers. John was born into one of the Bronx area of New York's numerous Irish families. When he was free, the Connors moved over the bridge to the safer New Jersey. 
His roots are in Ireland though, and he still goes there regularly to see his aunts, uncles and cousins. Dave was born in Jersey and reckons he'll probably die there too. He freely admits that the band grew up in neighbourhoods where you can leave your front door of your house wide open. People sometimes think of Dog Eat Dog as rich kids who have it good, he says, and it's true that none of us were born in the streets. We do have great parents and middle class families, but we're not oblivious to what's going on in the world. To their credit, Dog Eat Dog don't write about being broke and miserable. We reflect our environment and background, says John. The new album deals mostly with our experiences in the last couple of years touring, travelling relationships. The pair spent their childhoods gorging themselves on heavy metal and avoiding doing any work at school. Although being the son of two artists, they liked art, if nothing else. I was a bad kid, he says. I always caused problems and got kicked out of classes. I'm living proof that you don't have to do homework to get through. In classes, I used uh, my long hair to hide my earphones, which were connected to the Walkman in my leather jacket, says John. I listened to stuff like the Stormtroopers of Death while the teachers were talking. I was a disruptive kid, but that was probably through being raised an Irish Catholic and going to church for a bunch of years. I started working when I was 10 delivering papers. I wanted money so I could buy records and do what I wanted. Why fuck around with school and sports? We're not that different from any of the kids we know, uh, adds Dave. When we met, it was just fate. Colourman guitarist Sean Kilkenny were the first to meet at school. Besides the Irish connection, they shared the same taste in interior design. It was like something out of a movie, recalls John. I opened my locker and there were pictures of Metallica and Ozzy in there. Sean opened his and there were pictures of ACDC and Wasp. We've been tight friends ever since. We got into skateboarding at the same time, drank beers together for the first time and got into the local music scene. The scene was based around the China Club, which was where John finally met Dave. By now, they were both playing in covers bands. John's mob, Havoc, did their own versions of everything from the Beastie Boys to Slayer to the Sex Pistols. Dave's group, meanwhile, played strictly heavy metal covers, stuff like Iron Maiden and Dockham. But we both like the hardest shit, like Exodus, DRA and SOD, says Dave, so we hit it off pretty well. By 1986, they had found their two favourite styles of music through Metallica's Master of Puppets and Run DMC's Run DMC. We'd headbang to Run DMC and breakdance to Metallica, laughs John. Dave got his first career break of sorts when perennial New York hardcore crew Mucky Pup saw him play at the China Club and asked him to join their band. He turned up for his first pup rehearsal and discovered that Connor was also working for them, carrying gear and stuff. I was just the dude they knew and wanted to bring on tour, says John. We all lived in a van, eating ham and cheese sandwiches. It was as low as we could possibly live, but it was great. The only things I thought about in my teenage years were sex, drugs and rock and roll. I've got somewhat above that mentality in the last few years. Sean Kilkenny also joined Mucky Pup, but on April the 1st, 1990, he and Dave walked out to form Dog Eat Dog. They told uh, Connor he could be their new singer. It wasn't about trying people out, it was about friends, explains Dave. The day after we quit, Sean and I wrote something like 16 songs in my living room. Connor, who was working in the warehouse at the time, would come home at night to find his two friends drunkenly babbling about their latest creation. One song was about Neobor's dog. Another was called The Beer Song and featured Connor reading the print off a Budweiser can. That shows how poor we were in those days, smiles John. I think Budweiser's the worst beer in the world. The band started rehearsing in Neobor's parents' basement where they kept their new mascot, a beer mug full of mould. My mum's so cool, says Dave. If she were here now, she'd be walking around this restaurant telling people I'm in Dog Eat Dog. By the summer of 1990, Dog Eat Dog were holding toga parties in their basement rehearsal space where they'd play for 50 of their scantily clad mates. By early 91, they pinched a third member of Mucky Pump guitarist Dave Nastassi. They spent the next two years jamming, making demos and playing a local show every month. 
Neil audiences warmed to their unpretentious attitude which had been inspired by bands like Murphy's Law and Fishbone. Or at least, that's what they told everybody. We fooled club owners into thinking we were drawing people in, says Dave with a big fat grin. We got a word of mouth reputation in the sea. I helped spread the word through a video store where I worked. Everyone who rented the movie got a doggy dog flyer. We were small fish in a big pond, that jump. There's a big misconception that a New York band can start up and just do shit. It's hard. You need friends to constantly come to your shows. Dougie Doug finally signed to Roadrunner Records in 1993. The company were attracted uh, by their reputation as a smart live band and the unstinting praise they were getting from Biohazard, who were also with Roadrunner at the time. The first record Doug Eat Dog released was the Warrant EP. It was crucified by the press. Me, I always knew they'd make it. Bullshit guff John for a mouthful of garden burger with Monterey Jack cheese. You gave it 1k. You were one of the harshest critics. Ah yes, I remember now, says Dave with mock menace. But we never said fuck Kerrang. And we've learned so much since then. When we did Warrant, we were absolutely clueless. Totally unprepared, with no money. Recruiting sacked Keysman Scott Muller, the band hooked up with Biohazard for a European tour in May 94. We played 38 shows in 40 days, says John. But we really lucked out on that tour. People were so accepting of us. And at the time, it was the biggest thing going through Europe. The band's first full-length album, All Borough Kings, was released to coincide with the Biohazard dates. Infinitely better than Warrant, it proved to be the very definition of sleeper success. It allowed the band to tour like dogs, and it sold and sold and sold, steadily and consistently. Nastassi left to get married, and Mark DeBacca joined uh, up in his place. Drummer Dave Maltby jumped ship in October, suffering from exhaustion, his stall subsequently being filled by the Cooper Cumber Cool Brandon Finley. Then Doggy Dog exploded into your living room and your mates. It started last November when they were the shock winners of the best live act at the European MTV Awards. The band spent the night surrounded by paparazzi flashlights and guzzling champagne. It was completed when the Jam Master J remix of No Front rocketed into the UK top 10 and Doggy Dog bounced onto top of the pops. Now there's a new record, an upcoming appearance of Gone Into 96 and the distance feeling um, that this will really be Doggy Dog's year. And as corny as it sounds, the overwhelming impression of Doggy Dog is still of a band with no front. They have little to hide, or as Neobold puts it, the only thing you don't know about us is our personal sex lives. But what will they do when they no longer feel like acting like everybody's favourite class pound? When John Connor doesn't want to fire an enormous water pistol at people anymore? I'll retire to my close company, he says. After 18 months on the road last year, I went on record as saying I couldn't see myself doing this when I was 13. But then I look at a guy like Brandon who is 13 and he's fucking loving it. So we're going to have fun and keep the vibes uh, positive for a long time. When that stops, we stop. Beavis, you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Lives and the first concert reviewed this week is Kiss, supported by Addison Chains at the Tiger Stadium Detroit on Friday, June the 28th. Reviewed by Liz Evans, this one gets 4 out of 5. Having struggled with more rumours than almost any other band currently in action, Alice in Chains nevertheless proved tonight that they still have more intensity, more power and more depth than just about all of their contemporaries. The only terrible, unavoidable truth is that vocalist Lane Staley is still obviously in trouble. Once a quivering mass of mesmerising grace, he now stands rooted to the spot, frail and detached, frighteningly white and painfully thin clutching the mic with more desperation than passion. 
Although still an ominously commanding frontman with a beautifully expressive voice and a stark forceful charisma, he looks at the same time utterly drained. Watching him in such a diminished state despite the band's incredible strength is truly heartbreaking. Still, for charging the darkest, most twisted emotions with single stunning blows of deeply concentrated sonic energy, there's no one to touch Alice in Chains. Songs like God Am, Damn That River, Wood and the huge hit Man in the Box are greeted with cries of delight from the crowd. Guitarist Jerry Cantrell, bassist Mike Inez and drummer Sean Kinney clown around between songs and depart on a high, waving and grinning and no doubt itching for the next day. If Lane can stay afloat, this band deserves to get back on top again. But watching him shuffle lifelessly off stage makes you wonder exactly what they're up against. And so to Kiss, the ultimate party band with a hat full of tricks and a clutch of fizzy pop songs. Decked out in full cartoon superhero makeup and trussed up like turkeys in comic books, silver and black. Complete with cloaks, bare chests and platform boots. They envelope everyone in the time warp, turn the clocks back to 1975 and crank up Detroit with all the pizzazz of fading Las Vegas legends. Maybe you have to be an American to really appreciate the full resonance of this occasion because although the stadium is filled with awestruck, unbelieving, gobsmacked kids, all the eyes catches are four old guys covered in pan stick, surrounded by half-hearted pyrotechnics and a less than spectacular light show. It's fun, but not for two hours. And considering the hype which has preceded the event, it's hardly earth-shattering. We get Love Gun, Do You Love Me, 2000 Man, Detroit Rock City and a score of other songs that a million Americans spent their adolescences listening to. We get Ace Freely's widdly widdly theatrics which culminate in his guitar igniting before being uh, hoisted into the air where it flickers out instead of blazing away. We get Gene Simmons spitting blood and being hauled onto a platform way up on the lighting rig where he sings God of Thunder. And we get a rather long winded drum solo from Peter Chris who simply can't get enough applause. We get the works. A great big cabaret act built on towering ostentation and OTT theatrics that is simply a little too garish and a little too huge to fulfil everything it promises. Where Alice in Chains are inspirational, relevant and incredibly powerful, Kiss, when you get past the surface, Flash are a little more than a colourful sparkler which fizzles out after a few minutes. Comparisons just aren't worth making. Next up this week we have Fear Factory supported by Manhole and Train at the Terminal 396 University Cardiff. Uh, this one is reviewed by Steve Beebe. This one gets 5 out of 5. Anticipation could not be greater as one of the hottest metal tours of the year gets underway. This small venue could probably have sold out twice over. It's good to note that for once there is no idling around the bar area during the support band. The four members are drained of plenty to smile about as they are welcomed more warmly than many headline bands. Their live act is already much improved on that uh, scene in the UK uh, back in May. Drain could yet be a revolution for all female bands. Manhole already are a fucking revolution. Their energy comes straight from frontwoman Terry B's stormy soul. She's as mad, bad and dangerous as it's possible to be on a stage without actually blowing up. With guitarist Scott Ureda hammering out great iron slabs of bitterness, Terry unleashes her frustration and anger into the arms of a receptive audience. Early equipment troubles are nearly uh, sting her into greater effort. Fear Factory are ready to bring their hell to our hell. They slope onto the stage, hunched and contorted figures ready to pulverise their growing army of admirers. When Demanufacture kicks in, it's an intense, twisting, bone-crushing barrage. The mechanical effects just add into the confusion. 
Zero signal simply hurts, like self-biased resistor is murderously heavy, and yet somehow features a cast iron melody bolted on top. Burton's Bell alternates from his usual gruff bark to a dark tenor that would do Pavarotti proud. Fear Factory's secret is their almost unique ability to wield genuine singable melodies onto an industrial inferno of unbelievable heaviness. Tonight the chorus to self-immolation is sharp enough to take both your eyes out. Guitarist Dino Cazares examines the scene before him with obvious relish, but continually hands out water supplies to those suffering at the front. As Bell comes close to coughing up his dinner on Newbreed and threatens to spontaneously combust on Flashpoint, drummer Raymond Herrera controls the mayhem with an almost inhuman precision. One image will remain longer than any other, that of Bell winding Piss Christ to its slow anthemic climax, finally turning the microphone to the crowd as they stretch their arms towards the stage and sing the words, Where is your saviour now? Where indeed? Why not let Fear Factory ruin your life this summer? Next up we have Cradle of Filth at the Astoria London on Friday June the 28th. Reviewed by Malcolm Dome, this one gets 2 out of 5. Black Metal A, eh? not a form of music one can be objective about. You either love the whole preposterous genre or you hate it. To attempt any degree of objectivity is quite possibly missing the point, but here goes anyway. Cradle of Filth are regarded as the best exponents of black metal in Britain, which might be rather like claiming that Scarborough United are the best football team in Scarborough. Not exactly difficult, but they've shown real musical ability in the past. Check out their 94 debut album, The Principle of Evil Made Flesh. And now they've got a deal uh, with Music for Nations, they could go from strength to strength. Well, they could do, but it's like I have a great deal left to learn about how to stage a convincing show. Playing to a surprisingly static crowd, don't black metal fans move, Cradle of Filth show no signs of showmanship, burying much of their talent in a swarming, swirling sound that is altogether too quiet and muddy, and there's little in the way of personality to keep the fans' attention. Just about the only concession the band make to the theatricality of their music, apart from the inevitable use of that naff makeup, is the introduction of a female dancer who spends several minutes waving her limbs in a supposedly dark and sinister manner, but actually looks as if she's impersonating a tree swaying in a light breeze. This won't do at all. If Cradle of Filth aspire to become more than an in-joke in a, a decreasing number of people, then they have to open up their eyes and ears to the big wide world. When the most striking thing about a band is how short their singer looks, they have a problem. The best black metal band in the UK, possibly, but I dread to think what the second best are like. And finally this week, we have Type of Negative, uh, live at the Roskilde Festival Copenhagen on Friday, June the 28th. Reviewed by Jason Unup, this one gets 4 out of 5. Type of negative are coming. They're approaching Donington's second stage like some kind of plague. Britain is, after all, one of the few territories left to demonise. They're one of the few bands around who can play lengthy songs without boring the breasts off you. They also provide both a massive sight and sound. Typo played this evening in an enormous open-sided tent for a couple of thousand wedged-in bodies. Tree shadows form the backdrop, with the lighting arranged to make towering singer faces Pete Steele's eyes look like huge black holes in his head. Sweet but Jesus, he is the horror of Babylon. When people try to pin them down as doom metal, goth or hardcore, this band slip away like Vaseline smeared eels every time. They change moods from night to night. And this evening, Typo are in up-tempo, aggressive mode more often than not. Epic soundscapes are regularly eclipsed by flashes of the band's hardcore bass past output, like Kill All The White People and Too Late Frozen. 
The only song aired from forthcoming album October Rust is the excellent My Girlfriend's Girlfriend, which messaged the uh, Sisters of Mercy with a doors to stunning effect. This is a song about suicide, says Steele of Are You Afraid, sounding like he swallowed gravel. We hope that none of you do this because, of course, we'd like to see you next year. Steel charms the shorts off the crowd throughout, probably in reaction to the stupid Peter Steele is a Nazi banner. Fascist allegations against the man have always held less weight than an anemic pack mule. He just likes winding people up. But he's playing it safer in Europe now, though. Tonight's ecstatic reaction suggests that man with banner is a minority of one and should probably secure himself a life. The only thing wrong with this set is the cramped, uncomfortably sweaty setting. They close with black number one, Little Miss Scare All, the anthemic slab of darkness that broke them in America and Europe. Everybody knows the words chanting, loving you was like loving the dead. You can't see from here, but Peter Steele is surely allowing himself a black tooth grin. Next up in Kerrang, we have a summer's back, the sounds, the sights, the swag, sunburnt 12-page pullout from Reef to Reading to Ray-Bans. It's your guide to what's hot this summer. So this summer pullout, uh, it's basically the first few pages. They're just talking about bands, Prodigy, Ash, Doggy Dog, Fear Factory, Foo Fighters, usual, what they're up to this summer. Um, not really going to read that out. There's also a couple of posters, Skin, John Bon Jovi, and it's also what festivals are going on this summer and where to get tickets, etc., etc. Tea in the Park, Don into 96, Phoenix, File 96, Lollapalooza, Red in 96, etc., etc. Again, not going to read that out, but there is a part that I am going to read out to you, which is a fascinating snapshot of summer in 1996. So here we go. The sights, the sounds, the swag. You want the summer's best records, smartest holidays, hottest films, coolest gear, and tastiest ice cream? You got it. What to hear? Ash, oh yeah. Still in a school skirt and a summer blouse, she was talking over me over. Still, I don't regret one thing. Enduring image, isn't it? Brass straps for goalposts, etc. Taken from the number one album, 1977, this joyously innocent pain to puppy love is the best summer song since man learned how to walk upright. You should all have it by now, but even if you don't, it'll be blasting out from stereos across the nation all summer. The Black Crows, Three Snakes and One Charm. The Battling Robinson Brothers return all loose-limbed and funky on their long-awaited new album. By turns groovy, spiritual and slamming, this is the album to get mellow to as summer nights administer their languid caresses. Combine Chris Robinson's velvety tones with a nicely chilled bottle of wine, herbal relaxants and the company of a young friend, and you'll never want the sun to set on this sizzling season, out on July 22nd. Joyrider Rush Hour. The possible surprise smash hit of the summer. This is the pop-smart Irish punksters tackling Jane Wilden's cheekly catchy tune with straight faces and big breezy hooks. Pick it up on July 15th and sing it in the bath for the next week. Pearl Jam, as yet untitled new LP. God only knows what it sounds like, but you can bet Eddie chuckles better and the boys will come up with something pretty damn special. Spoiler, and they did, it was the album No Code. Producer Brendan O'Brien proclaimed the album Amazing Way Back, and although unlikely to feature too many tunes about chugging beer and getting laid, expect to hear the most soulful and intense outpourings of the season, due on August 27th. What to see? Mission Impossible. Big screen remake of the cult 60s TV show starring Tom Cruise and perennial brat pack underachiever Emilio Estevez. Sure to be bigger than Vinnie Paul's boxer shorts, this one features outrageous stunts, improbable gadgets, much high-tech gobbledygook, and more thrills per minute than Saucy Susie's spank me chat line. 
Apparently, smouldering French Uber Babe Emmanuel Beart is in there too. What more could you possibly want? Opens July 5th. Twister. With a screenplay written by Michael Jurassic Park Frichton, this tale of turbulent tornadoes in America's Midwest has been blowing away all box office competition in the US. No big name stars involved, but with Steven Spielberg and speed director Jan de Bont involved, we can expect much drama, mad special effects, and more wind than Dino Cazares after a Vindaloo. Opens July 26th. Cable Guy. The tale of a lonely TV salesman, Jim Carrey, and his misadventures with a hapless cable subscriber, Matthew Broderick. Described as insanely funny by the rubber-faced Carrie, but then the spawny git got paid $20 million to star in it, so he would say that. Given that Mr. Carrie is second only to Mr. J.H. Christ in pulling off miracles with second-rate material, this is bound to send tears of laughter trickling down your trouser legs. The soundtrack features Alice in Chains' Jerry Cantrell, Pearl Jam's Mike McCready, Paul Papyrus, and Filter. Opens July 12th. Independence Day. Gobsmacking special effects as alien civilizations decide to invite the inhabitants of Earth outside for spilling their intergalactic pints or something. A throwback to classic 70s disaster movies, this one stars Jeff the Fly Goldblum, Will Fresh Prince of Bel-Air Smith and probably squillions of pointy-headed grey-faced aliens who may or may not bear a striking resemblance to Billy Corgan. Opens August 9th. Stealing Beauty, arty comedy from Italian legend Bernardo Bertolucci. More importantly, Aerosmith singer Steven Tyler's babe mungus daughter Liv has a starring role as a gorgeous yank bird causing much trouser tent action whilst on holiday in Tuscany. Expect much gorgeous scenery, emotional toing and froing and deep meaningful and intense dialogue. Liv getting her kit off would obviously be a bonus for the lads. Not that we're into that sort of thing, you understand. Opens August 23rd. What to wear? Sabutio t-shirts. Even if you're sick to the back fangs of all this footy nonsense, we think you'll agree that these shirts will be a bit handy in the middle of the park. Named after great footballers of the past, Zico, Beckenbauer, Platini and Bremner, these nifty numbers are as colourful as Gazza's past and as stylish as a McManaman dribble. Tackle one of these in the months till the footy season restarts on August 17th, back fans. We'll pass in a crazy fun-filled blur, possibly priced between $17.99 and $21.99. Eye to eye sunglasses. You should grab every opportunity to ponce around town with an eye-catching pair of shades. Currently borrowing the design styles of more expensive glare goggles, these little gems are currently nestling atop the nation's hottest hooters, priced between £12.50 and £14.50. Hawaiian Tropic Suntan Oil Factor 6, £8.25 There's a marked difference between looking bronzed and beautiful and looking like a freshly smacked ass. So to make sure the boy girl of your dreams doesn't mistake you for an oversized beetroot after bottling, we recommend this delightful oil for the natural tan of the islands. Presumably, that's not the Shetland Islands then. Available for £8.25 from all good chemists. What to read? Ecstasy by Irvine Welsh, Jonathan Cape, 9.99. Three tales of chemical romance from the all for a train spine. Expect much shagging, drug taking and more bad language. Don't let the near impenetrable Scottish dialect put you off. Welsh is the most entertaining novelist of our generation. I must. Gridiron by Philip Kerr, Vintage 599. A cautionary X-Files S sci-fi tale of a smart building which begins to think for itself and inflict untold misery upon its inhabitants. Well scary by all accounts, with much raging against the machines and cybernautic heroics afoot. The film rights have just been sold for an obscene amount of money, so buy it now and you can patronise all your mates by saying, well personally I thought the book was better in a year's time. 
Rebel Without a Crew by Robert Rodriguez, Faber and Faber, 11.99. Written by Quentin Tarantino's buddy and director of From Dust Till Dawn, Robert Rodriguez, this is a heartwarming tale of punk rock filmmaking and David kicking the shit out of Goliath. You'll cheer out loud as our Rob takes on the might of the Hollywood film industry armed with one camera, no money, and a stack of cunningly bright ideas. Go on, my son. Death Dealer, Verotic, 3.95. With words from the evil Elvis Glenn Danzig and illustrations by noted artist Simon Bisley, this tale of spine cleaving and dark betrayal will enliven the most horrendous holiday experience. What to play? Resident Evil. The summer's numero uno shoot 'em up experience. This game for the Sony PlayStation carries an 18 certificate and has been held up while some of the more OTT blood and guts are edited out of the finished package. Apparently inspired by the classic Friday 13 Halloween slasher movies, the aim is to solve a murder mystery in a haunted house which specialises in chemical experimentation and slaughter as many mutants as possible too. Of course, the Age of Restoring the Trocadero Centre on London's Piccadilly Circus will be open at the midnight on Thursday July 25th for an over-18 promo night, featuring, by all accounts, devil dogs, zombies and assorted weirdness. Scary. Dracula's Haunted House on the Imaginator at the Trocadero Piccadilly Circus London, £3.50 a go. Promising the ride of your afterlife, this trouser-wetting interactive movie will bring the age-old thrill of the creaking ghost train bang up to date for that authentic end-of-millennium cranks mother, I think my sphincter has just collapsed feeling. Americans have described this ride as awesome and terrifying, but then everybody knows that Yanks are big Jessies anyway. Whatever dodge the tourists and enjoy the second scariest experience known to man. The first obviously being a date with whole woman Courtney Love. What to consume? Sub-Zero. Last year it was hooch. This year the hip new drink is Sub-Zero, a frankly naughty little combination of refreshing soda and cheeky alcohol. Add blackcurrant juice to really make your taste buds stand to attention. Caramel Ice Cream. The ice cream version of the chocolate bar that's promoted by the Babelicious Cartoon Bunny. This will call you on the most sizzling of days. Smooth caramel, tongue-tickling ice cream, rampant rabbit, a nurse, the screens. Available from anywhere with a bloody big freezer price 79p. Feedback and the letter of the week begins. I am disgusted with Shirley Manson. Why the bloody hell did Kerrang say she is the coolest rock star of all time? Garbage would still be gigging in pubs and would have had no press coverage if Butch Vig wasn't in the band. They've only done one album and when I listened to it I fell into a coma. It's the most overproduced thing since Kraft Cheese Slices. Shirley wears more makeup than all the kids put together and Vig is a sad old git who is only famous because he produced Nevermind. Garbage are the most overrated things since Pamela Anderson. Tony Wright should have been made the coolest rock star. Fair and square. End of story. Pod. Stoke. Blame your fellow readers, Pod. It was their votes that counted in the poll. Editor. No wonder Phil Anselmo won't speak to the British rock press after the fucking bullshit racist claims made by Kerrang last year. Now, as they say in the South, Phil's fucking you back and it serves you right for writing shit about him without taking time out to ask his side of the story. L. Del Fernandez, Dartford. Hold on a sec. Bullshit racist claims Kerrang reported the facts of the Pantera race Ralph story, then printed a written statement from Phil Anselmo in which he expressed his regret for the comments he made on stage in the US about black rap artists. Kerrang has no feud with Phil Anselmo or Pantera, and that's official. Editor. 
what the hell is going on with rock fans out there? Every week, somebody is slagging off other people for liking different bands. And why is it that people think you should only like one genre of rock music? What the hell does it matter if the music rocks? I like Bon Jovi and Terrorvision, but I also like Paradise Lost, White Zombie, Sepultura, Offspring, The Wild Hearts and Nirvana. Come on, rock fans, don't be so narrow-minded. Keely Barkin. P.S. Thanks to Kerrang for excellent coverage on all my favourite bands. In a recent issue of Kerrang, you said that Cannibal Corpse are one of the few death metal bands who can play. So, most death metal bands can't, but Reef, Garbage and Ash can, right? What a load of bollocks. You've labelled Morbid Angel Donut, but if you ask one of your fave Brit rock guitarists to play the solo to Where the Slime Live, they cack their load. Kerrang journalists don't understand the complexity of death metal. Do you say these things to sound trendy or because you can't comprehend the extremity? Either way, it goes against the principle of rock music. Catherine Warrington. The dropping that Kerrang gave Slayer's undisputed attitude LP was totally uncalled for. Slayer have never done anything naff in the 14 brain fucking years they've been together. Undisputed attitude flattens the whole punk rock scene and should have been greeted with open arms. But no, you'd rather give rave reviews to the wanking Wild Hearts who have about as much talent as PJ and Duncan. Mr. Freeze, Manchester. I'm pissed off with the wankers complaining that Ash and Brian Adams are not rock and should not be in Kerrang. But come on, the prodigy? I won't stop buying Kerrang just because they've appeared a couple of times. But please, let's not have any more rave groups. Andre Serrano's inspiration, Ireland. So the Manics fan from Slough thinks that everything must go is better than Metallica's load. Piss off. The Manics are a bunch of cross-dressing losers who rock as much as ABBA. Manix fans should get a life, preferably with the money they waste on shit Manix albums. Fuck off. Ross, the Antichrist, Tully Body. I've sent in God knows how many letters to feedback and never had one printed. I might as well send this one next door because you'll be none the wiser. I've got more bastard chance of winning the lottery, so fuck you. I'm not writing again. HD, Pantera Freak. Ill communication. Super Vixen. The hottest super babe in rock is here. She's Gwen Stefani. She fronts million selling US sensations, no doubt, and once she's had her eyebrows plucked, she'll tell Paul Elliott why the Just a Girl single is the song of the summer. A cute blonde singing a top tune. What could be better? In America, no doubt, I've scored one of those summer's biggest hits with Just a Girl. A fizzy burst of punky pop sung cheekily and saucily by the gorgeous Gwen Stefani. The five-piece band from Orange County, California, home of Offspring, all-round punk rock central USA, also landed a gig on one of the hottest tours of the year, supporting British grunge messiahs Bush. As No Doubt's latest LP, Tragic Kingdom, racked up a million sales, rumours spread of a romance between Gwen and Bush heartthrob Gavin Rossdale. Right now, No Doubt is the name on the lips of every sus yank rock fan, and the UK is the band's next target. Gwen thinks, it's all a bit of a laugh. At least, she would be laughing if she wasn't having her eyebrows plucked in preparation for Kerrang's photo shoot. Poor Gwen winces as an apologetic makeup girl yanks another hair from her brow using a mean-looking pair of tweezers. Beauty and fame have their price. I don't think I've ever had any expectations of getting out of Orange County, Gwen smiles, incredulous that her band, the no-hope combo that spent years in her dad's garage, is suddenly big news across America. Hell, Gwen didn't even want to be in the band in the first place. My older brother, pianist Eric, got the band together. He had all the creative energy, she says. I was sitting on the couch watching the Brady Bunch. He forced me to sing and he brought a madness record home, which is what got us started. Oh yes, 
No doubt a big fans of the Camden Town Nutty Boys. You can hear it in the busy scar grooves of Excuse Me Mister, a right old knees up of a song. If you like Dog Eat Dog and rancid scar flavours and don't mind a little more pop in the mix, no doubt could be your soundtrack for the summer. We're like a salad of sound, says Gwen. There's a lot of different things going on which was always a problem in the past, but for some reason people don't seem to mind it on this record. When we were 17 we were really into madness and the specials, but Tom Dumont, our guitar player, grew up loving Kiss and Black Sabbath. And when I met Tony Canal, our bass player, he was really into Prince and was wearing a lot of purple. By now, you'll have got the idea that No Doubt are very different to most of the bands in Kerrang. Tragic Kingdom is essentially a pop album, but it rocks too. No Doubt could be the 90s, what Blondie were to the 80s. Both bands originated from punk rock scenes and when Gwen sings low, she comes on like Blondie's eminently shaggable mega bay Debbie Harry. When Nirvana came out, everything changed. What was alternative is now pop, says Gwen. We're a pop band, but not in the sense where you have a manager who puts the band together and choreographs your moves. I think we paid our dues. We grew up in Orange County, although I'm not a punker, the spirit is definitely there. We played with all those punk bands, but we sold out of course, she chuckles, ruining the makeup girl's attempt to smear on the lipstick. Do people care about bands selling out, she shrugs. Yeah, they do. We did a free concert in Orange County and these girls came up to me. They were probably 13 or 14 and they were really pissed off that we were on the radio like you're our band how could you be on the radio hey that's life and these days life is pretty sweet for gwen and no doubt but it wasn't always this way the band's original singer john spence committed suicide nine years ago and for the last five years nobody wanted a fun band like no doubt not when grunge was his drug of choice john was the one who really wanted to be in a band gwen recalls that was his dream but he really couldn't sing he was more of a screamer but he had an amazing stage presence. He would do backflips on stage, all this energy. I was his shy little sidekick. You know, we never really thought this was a career. We just kind of got lucky in the last year and our childhood got extended a little bit. It's so weird that we play every day. I remember times when we'd be thinking, oh, we have a show in a month. I'd be sitting in class thinking, oh my God, what am I gonna wear? Now it's so different. With Bush, we played for 10,000 people a night. People were there early and the kids were so energetic and excited. It was perfect. It was supposed to be three weeks and it ended up being three and a half months. Gwen smiles her lovely smile. For no doubt, life's becoming a landslide. We now come to singles. And just a reminder, if you want to hear the uh, singles of this week, our friend Mark puts together a playlist every week. So that will be on our Twitter and Instagram page. And it will also be included in the um, description for this pod- week's podcast. So find it there. It's a Spotify playlist. So if you don't have Spotify, um, I don't think you can listen to it. Or you can uh, listen to it free, but I think there's adverts. Or it doesn't play it in order. God, I can't remember what it was. Anyway, singles of the week. This week, the singles are reviewed by Paul Brannigan. We start with the Black Crows and their single, One Mirror Too Many. This gets three Ks. Having kissed and made up, the battling Robinson brothers stroll back into action with another soulful, spiritual bunch of languidly groovy riffs, tinged with Eastern psychedelia. The lead track suffers from an indifferent chorus, but this is still worth your hard-earned dosh, if only for the loose limb cover of Bob Marley's Pimper's Paradise, which reeks of exotic tobacco and heavy-lidded banter. The South will rise again, but not before noon, yet here. Blow with their single Mushroom Tea. This gets 2Ks. Ever since Oasis resold the Beatles to an eager new audience, dodgy has-beens have been emerging from the woodwork in a desperate effort to catch the speeding bandwagon. 
Hippie chanters blow, throw piano, odd sound effects and everything bar the kitchen sink into their Beatles small faces ripoff, resulting in a reasonably imaginative attempt at plagiarism. Though uh, why you'd want to settle for a 4th division Fab Four in the first place is a mystery. Mr Big UK with their single Broadway. This gets 1k. Check out those titles again and then have a wild guess at what this sounds like. Yep, it's hilariously bad sub-journey AOR with trite lyrics and weedy guitars which try to sneak unnoticed out of the studio. A fluffy, overblown and gloriously banal throwback to a thankfully bygone era. In Memory by Nevermore. This gets 1k. Laughably dated, pompous and pretentious epic metal from a Seattle quintet who longed for the era before the pox of grunge blighted their hometown. These ludicrous men formed the backbone of late 80s thrash also ran sanctuary and here they confidently warble, the future's not in our hands. Two fucking right it's not, you gumby halfwits. Wipeout by China Drum. This gets 4Ks. Having offered up the best Brit punk album of the year with Goose Fair, this manic Geordie trio issue another blazing slice of Huskadoo shares a glue bag with Gaza mid-paced melodicism, complete with a great shout along chorus, nifty harmonies and more passion than the Jackie Collins novel. Smart. And the prestigious title for single of the week this week goes to Joyrider with their single Rush Hour. This one gets 4Ks. Now this is how a summer single should sound. Cheeky, cheery, obscenely infectious and ran with searing shiny guitars. Rush Hour is a supercharged version of Jane Weedland's 1988 top 20 hit and should hopefully do just as well for Joyrider. Rather eclipsed in terms of profile by fellow countryman Ash, the Portadown Quartet have released a clutch of brilliant singles this year. And while it will be slightly ironic if this is to become their breakthrough tune, at least it will prove that there is some justice in this world. Expect Casterios to pump this one out a ridiculous volume all summer. Utterly irresistible. The last word. The ultimate questions on life, sex and the wonder bra girl. This week, Bon Jovi drummer Tico Torres talks to Paul Elliott. Last time somebody gave you a really good bollocking. My old lady's good for that, lest we forget Tico's old lady is the wonder bra girl, Eva Herzegova. That's the reality check. It happened last week. It's part of life. You're a man, she's a woman. They think differently and for some reason that's enough for sandpaper and coarseness within a relationship. Sometimes. That's also what makes it work. Last time you cooked dinner. Last week we cooked something together. It's always fun. We both enjoy cooking. We had a barbecue. We had some family and friends over. I cooked the steaks and she cooked the rest. A little corn salad. It was nice. Barbecues are a guy thing, yeah? But women do steaks too. You just uh, got to give them a chance. I've been a bachelor for a lot of years. You'd learn how to cook. Last time you messed up a song during a gig. Last month in Japan, and it was a big one. It's on film as well. I meant it, I really did. I stood up and did a crescendo on the cymbal and looked around and went, ah shit, wrong place, wrong time. The audience didn't know it, but the band always do. Last time somebody recognized Eva but ignored you. That happens a lot, but I think that's good. Last painting you finished. I did a painting of Jimi Hendrix and Miles Davis. I finished it about two days ago. I was in one of those moods. I was friends with Miles and a fan of both of them. They were geniuses. Miles was an incredible man. I met him playing in a jazz band around Harlem. He was also a painter. It was a matter of taste to sit in the same room as him sometimes because it got intense. But I guess a lot of people didn't understand him too much. He was just a man, a great man and a very creative one. Last painting you threw in the bin. 
It doesn't happen that often, but yeah, it happened. I don't actually throw it away, I just throw it in the corner, facing the wall. Once it fades in my memory, I'll come back and paint over it with something new. It's a funny thing painting. Last great movie you saw. Well, it wasn't Jumanji on the plane over here, that's for sure. I enjoyed Casino and Heat too. Seeing uh, two actors like Robert De Niro and Al Pacino on screen together, that was pretty interesting. Last Bon Jovi song you'd ever want to hear again. There's plenty of them. I think everybody's had those and they're usually from the earlier years. There's a lot of them on that second record, 7800 uh, Fahrenheit. I won't play the first or second records. It's hard to listen to them. These days, it's probably the only record I like from top to bottom. I listened to it yesterday and I still like it. Last time you broke a bone. I've never broken a bone. I've smashed a lot of things but never broken a bone. Bled a lot. Last time you had to charm your way out of a sticky situation. On the road, there are a lot of sticky situations. I remember in South America being in the wrong place, a lot of guns. I had to do some smooth talking and my Spanish came in pretty handy. I was with some football players. They drank too much and were getting friendly with the wrong women. I'm Spanish and I knew what was going on, so I said we've got to get out of here. Luckily we did, thanks to some smooth talking and a little champagne. Last place on earth you'd want to go back to. I'm not crazy about third world countries where you get young kids toting guns. I think that's a bit on the edge. They get a bit overzealous. The maturity hasn't set in and when you've got a kid with his finger on the trigger it makes you a little nervous. There's a few places like that in South America. Last time you cried. Sometime this year, four or five months ago, crying is a good thing. I'll say that. Last time you got so drunk you were singing and dancing in the street. Ha! That was a long time ago, probably about five years ago. I don't drink and dance in the streets as much as I used to. I cut down on the drinking. I'm in my 40s and I thought I'd better call it out. Keith Moon, infamously a boozy drummer for The Who, and John Bonham, equally infamous boozy drummer for Led Zeppelin, are dead. Sooner or later, you grow out of it. I have wine with meals, but I don't indulge in 12 bottles a night. Last time you felt cheated. Usually, when I have to pay taxes to the government, everybody gets that feeling. Last time you made a public speech. April, I did a talk to a school of the arts in West Palm Beach, Florida. I was a little bit nervous, but everybody came up individually and asked me questions one-to-one -one and that was cool. Last great party you went to. In Ireland, Eva and myself went out there for a benefit for children and it was a great time. Ireland's very much a party place. You can party for three days straight. Wonderful people. How long can you last? As long as you feel young and as long as you enjoy what you do, it doesn't matter what you do. So, long as you feel good about it, it can be forever or it can be a week. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy it couldn't get off the turntable. Albums. And the first album reviewed this week is Freed Snakes and One Charm by The Black Crows. Reviewed by Liz Evans, this one gets 4Ks. Six years on from their first delicious offering of slung back blues and loose rhythms, the Black Crows are finally learning to kick back without the party pressure. Having gone through punch-ups and silences, they've cemented their situation as a band of best friends and brothers by recording their most relaxed, mature album to date. And while it's not as instantly accessible as all of its predecessors, it's way more inviting than a Morica. While the first two Crows albums were full-on toe-tapping dive bar affairs, Amorica was dark, brooding and serious as hell, raising all kinds of personal ghosts for vocalist Chris Robinson, whose autobiographical slant was undressed for the occasion. Amorica was intense and difficult, and the Black Crows almost imploded after its release. Now, it's a whole new ballgame. Things are back on track in the Crows camp. 
Everyone's married and are breeding, and their wives, girlfriends, babies and dogs were invited to run right in the studio during the recording of Free Snakes. The result is a cool, mellow slice of honest emotion, sometimes expressed through narrative, sometimes told straight with the earnest party vibe having brewed into a natural happy high. Opening with a sumptuous, steamy, under a mountain, Free Snakes veers between good time ditties, sweeping love songs built on sorrowful swells of Rick Robinson's best blues lament, tambourine field stomps like new single One Mirror Too Many, and quieter, truly touching numbers filled with poignant melodies and beautifully simple words. Blackberry is an effortless, light-hearted, infectious itch. Good Friday and Girl in a Pawn Shop wind up in heart-rending, dramatic crescendos of guitars and the trademark Robinson bellow. Bring on, bring on, and the blinding, better when you're not alone are confused declarations of love built up on acoustic foundations. Capturing all manner of moods and feelings of a laid-back undercurrent from start to finish. Free Snakes sums up all the hedonistic confusion of being alive and human, reaching out, touching in all the right places and leaving with a great big grin on its face. Never have the Black Crows sounded so whole, so focused and so well-rounded. Using stories to lyrically illustrate emotion together with rattling beats and sweeping guitars with their feet in the southern boogie tradition of devil's music. This album acts like a window into whatever it is that drives one of rock's most soulful bands. Having weathered some of their worst storms, the Crows sound as earnest as ever, but at the same time more chilled out than they've previously done. This is a grown-up album brimming with solid tunes, smiles, tears, broken hearts and a fistful of hope. Inspiration is its middle name. The clouds have breezed away and for this band at least, the future feels very bright indeed. Next up we have The Moog Cookbook by The Moog Cookbook. Reviewed by Dave Everly, this one gets 5Ks. Be warned, The Moog Cookbook is a comedy album. So too, you could argue, are the presidents of the United States of America. This is Spinal Tap and 16 Stone. But the Moog Cookbook has one towering advantage over those albums. It is funny, as in side-splittingly, rib-achingly, skin-crawlingly funny. Put together by a shadowy collective of futurists and failed rock stars decked out in astronaut suits and goldfish bowl helmets, the Moog Cookbook lovingly picks 10 of the most famous alternative rock hits the world has ever seen and reworks and remodels them as cheap, cheesy, synthed out, electronic up space age bachelor pad music. Aha! All you young groovers are thinking this is going to be about as tuneful as a collapsing bridge, as hip as orthopedic shoes, as funny as a concrete enema. Wrong, wrong, and thrice wrong. Because what with the easy listening revival in full swing, if you'll pardon the pun, thanks to that nice Mr. Flowers, the Moog cookbook is more on the boil than a vat full of lobsters in the middle of the Sahara Desert at 12 noon on the hottest day of the year. So, what's in store? Well, a bounteous trove of undiscovered delight in a word or five. Those glum-faced youngsters Soundgarden are the first to get it in the neck. Their bleak anthem to existential angst, Black Old Sun, given the bossa nova once over and turned into the feistiest jig this side of, well, this side of Weezer's Buddy Holly, which is the next classic to be given the Moog treatment. From then on, it's up, up, up all the way. You've got everything from Green Day's Basket Case, here reinvented as a truly magnificent slice of bug-eyed lift music, to Sir Leonard of Kravitz's rocktastic Are You Gonna Go My Way, which amazingly manages to improve on the original. How so? Let's just say, simps, not dread. And if that isn't hip enough for you plaid-shirted grungers, even flow, and smells like teen spirit, buy, oh you know, get stretched out. 
flipped over and turned into the sort of dance floor groovers that the Disco Nation would have been proud of back in 76. Even the oldsters get a look in with Tom Petty's Free Falling and Neil Young's Godlike Rockin' in the Free World given the electronic facelift in return for another bite of the great crusty pie of credibility. This, Hepcats and Hepkittens, is the sound of tomorrow. Dig it. Next up we have the album The Crow 2 City of Angels by Various. Reviewed by Ray Zell, this gets 4Ks. These Crow soundtracks are thrown together with no small amount of sus. Take the credit of the original Stone Temple Pilots, Nine Inch Nails, Raising the Machine, Pantera plus a good few notable heavyweight etc. It is a fact that director Alex Proyas wanted the dynamics of the Crow to be propelled by rock music. The Crow 2, as it transpires, more than holds its own against its predecessor, boasting the likes of Hole, White Zombie and Iggy Pop. And once again, whether the songs are simper or snarl, it's an atmospheric collection emanating shades not often spotted in rainbows. But switch out the lights, light a candle so you can make eerie bird shadows on the ceiling, shove this on and you're away. Of interest to most, of course, are whole returning with a cover of the old Fleetwood Mac effort Gold Dust Woman, their first trip in Yonks into that place with recording equipment and stuff. Gold Dust Woman is an enchanting piece which finds our Courtney abstaining from her usual shouty tactics, instead concentrating on that sumptuous lazy wine plus tortured note holding, while the bare bones of the instrumentation swells effectively to the song's climax. Ooh. Techno cycle babble rabble white zombie join the party with a comic book bone rattler I'm your boogeyman. A fab groove shuffle permeates throughout as head zombie Rob waffles on like a pervert singing through an aqualung on subjects indecipherable but no doubt super cool. And oh my, there are lots of dark dark goodies on offer elsewhere. Like the twisted trash of New York Luce's spit, the hypnotic and disjointed jungle drum rhythm of bushes in a lonely place. Corn building up to a frightening ejaculation on Sean Olsen and a speaker shredding live rendition of I Wanna Be Your Dog from the aforementioned Mr. Pop. Lots of hypnotic chick vocal action too with four non-blonde vocalist Linda Perry doing some serious soul searing on Knock Me Out and especially PJ Harvey on the album's top tracks Naked Cousin where she sings strong and ominous over a thick swamp of noise. Of course Token emotion charge final song, Believe in Angels, you can always picture the credits rolling over it, isn't a patch from the last album's mesmeric, It Can't Rain All The Time by James Sibbery. Still, Canadian singer Heather Nova gives it the old heart-torn virgin on deranged routine. Heather herself is being touted as the next hot songstress to follow in the wake of Alanis Morissette and Cheryl What's-Her-Face. Oh yeah, Crow. You can blow that candle out now. Sweet dreams. And finally this week we have the album H2O by H2O. Reviewed by Malcolm Dome, this gets 2Ks. Avoiding the obvious jokes about sounding wet, it must be said that H2O is fairly ordinary New York hardcore energetic, enthusiastic, but lacking in real depth and musical quality. It sounds like this lot have only ever heard of the damned and agnostic front, and after a while every song begins to sound alike, with only the adventurous sub-African chance of five-year plan offering any real originality. Otherwise, it's hardcore by numbers, and we're not talking lottery winning ones either. Charts and number one in the album chart this week is Load Metallica, number one in the singles chart is Tatva Cooler Shaker, and number one in the indie LPs is Swan Song by Carcass. The readers chart this week comes from Nutty Nick of London. 
Their chart begins 1, the incomplete obituary, 2, once upon a cross day aside, 3, nausea at the gates, 4, fear of the dark iron maiden, 5, refuse, resist, sepultura, 6, anarchy in the UK, sex pistols, 7, the great southern tranquil pantera, 8, devoured by vermin, cannibal corpse, 9, reigning blood slayer, and 10, demanufacture, fear factory. The star tracks this week come from Colin Felony of Curb Dog. Their chart begins 1, Frostum, the beta, the posies, 2, Harmacy, Sebado, 3, Foo Fighters, Foo Fighters, 4, Bob Mold, Bob Mold, and 5, Doolittle, by the Pixies. Next week in Kerrang! Back Issues, more Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi, the first UK live review, plus John on his next solo LP. Slayer, Fear Factory and Misery Loves Company, Undisputed Attitude Hits London, Alice in Chains, Incredible Sulks, Take the Kerrang! Challenge, Machine Ed, Brutal New LP Exclusive, Kerrang! The Awards, the winners, the losers, the boozers, the schmoozers. Star-studded massive report at the highest event of the year. Plus the Black Crows, Biohazard, Ash, Nine Inch Nails, Pearl Jam, Bush and Terrorvision. We will be back next Wednesday as usual. Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to talking to you all then. Bye for now.